Good morning. Thank you guys for being here this weekend. We're going to, no time for greeting this morning. Uh, I have got a lot to share with you um, so that we can get you Bronco fans out of here by 2 o'clock so you can see the game. <laughs> so so I, I do, seriously, I, I have a lot to share with you uh, on this issue of marriage. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 is where we're going to be uh, th- this morning, and it's amazing how much information I have and how much, how much stuff I had to cut out uh, just to try to get it in in the time that we have this, this morning. So we're going to have to stay focused. That means you guys can't laugh because if you laugh, then I get distracted and it just, just, <laughs> just goes downhill. And so we're talking about this issue of marriage. And so if you have your Bibles, your electronic devices, you can, you can turn with me, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. And we're going to look at the following verses. We've been in this series called Learning to Love uh, because we're all learning to love. We're all becoming one. We're all learning to love. Uh, Scripture talks about that. We've been talking about this theme when we started this series last week. And so today what we're going to talk about is the title of this message is Rock and and Rolls. Rock and Rolls. So is your marriage based upon the rock or is it based upon rolls? And and you'll understand that in a little bit. And so just a little bit about me. I don't mind, the fact is I like talking about roles in marriage because I run my house. No, I really do. Uh, I, I run the lawnmower, I run the weed eater, I run the washing machine, I run the dryer, the dishwasher, I run things in my house. And so, uh, so anyway, see, you guys aren't supposed to laugh. Remember, we've got to stay focused. And so we're talking about this issue of marriage. We're talking about this issue, is your marriage based upon the rock? Is it based upon rock or is it based upon roles? And I think there's some things in here that God, in fact is, I know there's some things in here that God has for us. So, so let's, just, let's just read the scripture and then we'll go from there. So, Matt, uh, so Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22, here's what the scripture says. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the body to the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, that's important, we're going to understand that, or, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Who who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And the central theme, the central verse to this series, verse 31, Therefore a man uh, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So I want to talk to you this morning about this issue of one, about this issue of becoming one. And I believe that this principle is central to living. It's, it, this, this, this principle that I'm going to talk to you this morning has even more implications just marriage alone. I think this, this principle of understanding what does it mean to become one, oneness is central to, to our life. Fact is, I believe this principle is the root of most of the problems that we have in life. The root of the issue is, is this issue of wholeheartedness, this issue of becoming one. Now listen, when you start looking at this word one, and you look it up in the dictionary, you realize that one has two different uh, definitions. 
And both definitions are diametrically opposed to one another. In other words, the, the, the definition, the two definitions for one are opposite of each other. So the first definition of one would be this, that it, it's singular, it's separate, or it's alone. So one definition of the word one is singular, it's separate, or it's alone. I'll give you an example. There is one piece of fried chicken. It's separate, it's alone, and it's singular. And someone needs to go and take care of that piece of chicken because that should never be. So the other definition of one is this, is that it's not singular, it's plural. It means this, it means joined together in unity. So it's not singular, it's plural, it's not alone, and it's not separate. I mean, this word is used in context with the church. This word is used in context also with the body. That we are many members, we are many parts, and we come together joined in unity as one with one purpose, with one vision, with one goal, with one direction. I mean, the Bible talks about this often, about this issue of of becoming one in the, in the power of that. For instance, for you, for you Bronco fans, at, 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 at two-something this afternoon, it's going to be 22 players, different roles, different positions that come together in unity with one vision, with one direction, with one goal. Okay, for those of you that are Cowboy fans, we're kicking off now. The illustration would go like this. It is 23 players, plenty, 23 different roles or positions, uh, because we got to include the referees. Uh, <laughs> I mean, anytime, anytime you can have three, you can commit three fouls, three penalties on the same play, and, that, and then a flag is thrown, but it's kind of picked up like nothing happened, and nothing is called, and you go on to win the game. Glory, hallelujah, we'll include the referees. So, so we're a little bit different than you. Yeah, amen. Yeah, that's... But you understand, right? You understand it's like 22 different hearts, 22 different people, 22 different people joined together in unity with one heart, with one goal, with one vision, all headed the same direction. So in my study, I started asking this question, how often does Scripture say this, this issue of two shall become one flesh? Well, it's actually five times. Four of those times, it's referring to marriage. One of those times, it's not referring to marriage. So fascinating. So if you're taking notes, we don't have time to, to write these down, but, but, but the reference is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 45, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, is the first time, the first marriage with Adam and Eve, it says two shall become, and two shall become one flesh. Then again, in the gospel, Jesus starts talking about marriage. He starts defining marriage. And he starts talking about this issue of male and female. And then he quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 45, both in Matthew chapter 19, verse 5, and then again in Mark chapter 10, verse 6. 
And Jesus, again, quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 45, and says, In marriage, male and female, two becoming one. A, a husband, a man, shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Ephesians chapter 5, I just read that, right? To where Paul's talking about marriage. Paul, again, references Genesis 2, chapter 20, uh, verse 24, and he references issue, two becoming one. Now, you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And all of a sudden, you see this phrase, you see this reference. It's not really talking about marriage. The fact is, you see this, this, this reference, and it gives us great insight into marriage. And all of a sudden, Paul begins not talking about marriage. He talks about the joining of two bodies when they're not husband and wife. In other words, he's talking about, he's talking about this issue of, of immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, here's what Paul says. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body. Not one flesh becomes one body with her. For as it is written, and now he starts talking about marriage. For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Interesting verse in this context. Interesting verse in this structure. Verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So now all of a sudden we get some insight into marriage. Now all of a sudden we realize that marriage is way more than just the joining of two bodies. That marriage is way more than just a sexual relationship. That there's something deeper about marriage. There's something deeper about this issue. And then all of a sudden you see verse 17. Paul, or, or, or Paul says in Corinthians that with the Lord you can be, become one spirit with him. So how do you become one spirit with him? What does that look like? Well, to become one spirit with Christ is this issue of you've got to die to self. In other words, it happens when you become a Christian to where you come to him and you die to self and you become a Christian. Uh, God's goal for your life, God's goal for my life is that he would be a priority in our life and that we would die to self and we would become one spirit with him. But wouldn't it be awesome in marriage? If we could, could become joined together in unity, if we could become one spirit with our husband or one spirit with our wife, what would, what would that look like? What would that look like if really we got to the place where we learned how to love and we become one spirit, one spirit in goals and one spirit in vision and one spirit in focus and one spirit in direction? I mean, what would that do? Seriously, what would that do for marriage? How do you become, in marriage, how do you become one spirit? The same way you become one spirit with the Lord, you got to die to self. No longer will I live to serve me in my agenda, in my goals, in my directions. I'll die to self, and I will live to please and to serve you. Isn't that what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago? That Jesus left the comfort of heaven, fully God and fully man, came to earth. And he said, not my will, but my Father's will. And he went to the cross, and he literally died on a cross so that we might live. Can you imagine if this played out in marriage? Can you imagine if every marriage, if every couple lived like that, and the husband and the wife came into marriage... He said, I'm going to die to self. No, no longer will I live to please me. I will live to please you. 
You think, you think marriage would succeed? Where my, my first purpose is to serve and to love and to take care of my family. Now, the world fights this, right? Fact is, let me just be honest, your, your flesh will fight this. Because all of a sudden, what will happen, because this isn't our natural bent. And listen, let me just tell you something. If you follow your natural bent in any area of your life, it always leads to destruction. So this isn't our natural bent. But the world will fight this because here's what the world says. Okay, okay, so if I come into the marriage, I die to self, and I live to serve and please someone else, then I'm going to lose who I am. I'm going to lose my identity. I'm going to lose my giftedness. I'm going to lose my personality. I'm going to lose, lose how I was wired. And, and, and God never asked you to do that. This isn't saying give up your identity. This isn't saying give up who you are. This isn't saying that, that you give up any of that. Fact is, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm telling you, this issue of one, this issue of oneness, this issue of being wholehearted and living is critical to a successful Christian life. It's critical to a marriage. Even in the context of the body of the church, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, says people begin coming into the church. They have different gifts. They have different personalities. They have different spiritual gifts. They have different identities and all these things. And they come into the body. They die to self. They're uniquely gifted, yet they are one. I'm telling you. If you're having trouble being one with a body, one in vision and goal with a church, in life groups, in body, in ministry, your real issue is having trouble dying to self, being one with the Lord. And the same is true in marriage. To where what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12, that people are coming into the body and they're dying to self, but they're not losing their personality. They're not losing their gift in this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Here's what the scripture says. See this three times, three different ways. You also see the Trinity in here. Now, there are varieties of gifts. Paul's talking about the, the local body. There are varieties of gifts. That's circled in my Bible. But the same Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit. There are varieties of service. But the same Lord. God, the Father. Or God the Son. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God, God the Father, who empowers them all in everyone. So you have the context of a church, people coming in, different abilities, diff different giftedness, different activities, different service, but the same Lord. Even though they are different, they are one. So you drop down, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. And here's what the scripture says. For just as the body is one and has many members, all and all the members of one body, though many, one are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So the key to a successful marriage is this. If both people, the husband and the wife, will die to self, joined in unity, you'll have a successful marriage. When one person always wants their own way or their own agenda, you're going to have struggle in marriage. The problems in marriage... 
I get a lot of comments after a sermon on marriage, of course, and some of them are just thinking hilarious. And a few years back, I was, I was, uh, I was preaching on marriage, and out in the foyer, a lady stopped me. And she said, you know, you know, Pastor, that, that whole right thing and always have to be right. And uh, yeah, I said, yes, ma'am. And that you were talking about, I said, yes, ma'am. She said, I, I had no idea that when I married Mr. Right, I did not know his middle name was always. <laughs> and so I didn't know how to respond. And so I said, okay, we'll pray for you. And so, uh, <laughs> I mean, how do you respond? Anyway, so anyway, you don't care. And so, so let me give you, I know that was a long intro. Because I'm telling you, we've got to understand this issue of wholehearted. We've got to understand this issue of oneness. We've got to understand what it means to become one with the Lord, what it means to become one with a body, what it means to become one in marriage. This one spirit is just critical to understand. So I just have two principles, one for the woman, the wife, and the other one for the husband. And so we'll just go in the order of Scripture, and the Scripture first addresses the wife and then addresses the husband. So here's the principle for the wife is this. It takes God to be a wife the way God intended a wife to be. It takes God to be a wife the way in which God intended a wife to be. In other words, this, God is going to cut across the, 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 the wife's natural bent, the woman's natural bent, and the man's natural bent. He's going to speak to the wife not out of her, streak, her strengths but out of her weakness. He's going to speak to the man not out of the man's strengths but his weakness. And the reason is because... So you'll depend on God because you need God to be the wife that God has called you to be. You need a relationship with God to be the husband that God has, has called you to be. Verse 21, when we start going into this and we start looking at this issue of submission, verse 21 says, we didn't read it, but says this, submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. In other words, there's also mutual submission that goes on. And so Paul is, Paul is saying that men are equal to women and women are equal to men. Paul never said that there's this inequality going on. Paul says over and over, Scripture says over and over, male and female created in the image of God, that men are equal to women, women are equal to men. This is not an issue of sameness. This is issue of roles. This is issue of position. This is an issue of a job description. And so what, what Paul tells the wife, and I'm telling you, it takes God to be a wife the way in which God intended a wife to be because it just cuts across your natural bit. And so what the scripture says that the woman is to come into the marriage, die to self, fall in line with her husband. That's what submission means. Submission simply means to fall in line with, to fall in rank with, and to follow. I mean, when you look at this, in every healthy organization, there's organizations, there's job descriptions, there's roles. There has to be a leader, there has to be organization, or there would be chaos. So God asked the wife, God asked the woman to come into marriage, die to self, and fall in line with mutual submission, join together in, in, in unity. And he speaks to the woman, not out of her strengths, but out of her weaknesses. And he speaks to the man, not out of the man's strengths, but his weaknesses. So we're going to see, after the curse, after the fall, we're going to see the natural bent of a woman, and we're going to see the natural bent of a man. And so watch this. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. So to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In your pain you shall bring forth children. Now watch this. So here's the natural bent of a woman. Your desire shall be for your husband. We're going to understand what that word desire means. Great insight. And he, the husband, shall rule over you. Okay. First with the natural bent of a woman. 
The word desire in the Hebrew means to take over. In other words, it means this. You will want to control your husband. Your natural bent will be to take over. Your natural bent will be an issue of control. Now, the natural bent of the man is to rule. He's not talking about servant leadership here. He's not talking about leading in love. He's talking about this issue, and your husband shall rule over you. In other words, it was a word that was used for slavery. It was a word that was used for destruction. And, and the husband, biblically, is to create an environment where his wife knows that she is loved, she is protected, and she is cared for. And so all of a sudden, you begin seeing this, this natural bent. And God says that you have to die to self, become one spirit with him, and it cuts across your natural bent. Now, ladies, I'm going to ask you a question, and please, please, please look straight ahead. Don't flinch. Don't, don't make a sound, okay? I said this in the, in the, in the see, you're getting me off. Uh, I said this last night in the 6 o'clock, and a lady could not control herself, and it was just like this, and then she just, she blurted out, and she was like so embarrassed. So I'm just warning you, don't do it. I don't want to have to turn into marriage counseling just to get everybody out of here. Okay, so here's the question. Ladies, hus uh, wives, would you like to change your husband? Awesome. You're doing good. Let me give you some insight into our marriage and how this worked in our marriage. Uh, years, years back, we're living in Houston, Texas, and, and you're probably not like us, but, but we, had, we had a fight. Karen and I, we had, it wasn't an argument, it wasn't a discussion, I mean, it was pretty we went to bed angry I know you're not supposed to but we were tired <laughs> that'll wear you out <laughs> and so we went to bed and that's when I learned this principle you know what if you go to if you go to bed angry you're gonna wake up even more angry than when you went to bed because you've been mulling over it all night right I mean, just, just, the, just your partner's ability to sound like they're going to sleep can make you angry. Like, how can they even sleep? Anyway, so so woke up, had a conversation before I went to work that morning, and we're still angry. After lunch, it's just bothering me, so I call Karen on the phone, and it did not go well. I mean, we're still angry. I get off the phone. Um, I had meetings the rest of that afternoon, and I got off the phone, and then all of a sudden, this, work, this weight just came over me. And I mean, it was just like conviction. And I'm like, God, it's just so wrong. Just so wrong. And it was heavy. It was so heavy that I, I canceled all of the meetings that afternoon. And I, I drove home, which I worked about 30, 40, 30 to 45 minutes, depending on traffic in Houston, uh, from where I lived. I drive home. I go home, open up the front door. Karen's in the living room. Never will forget this. And she just looks at me like, what are you doing home? I mean, she's shocked because I never came home early. And I just looked at her. All I could say is, hey, I'm a jerk. I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? After I picked her up off the carpet, <laughs> she was like shocked. She just, she said yes, and she just kept saying, it worked. It, wor it, it, it worked. She just kept saying, it, it really works. It works. And I'm like, what works? 
And she said, oh, you don't understand. I was in a Bible study. I probably shouldn't tell you this. I was in a Bible study with Marge Caldwell. Marge Caldwell was like a matriarch. Fact is, Marge Caldwell, she was a matriarch of our church. Marge Caldwell is a lady that mentored Beth Moore. And so she said Marge Caldwell had been married like 100 years at that time. And, and so she told, us, she told us this secret, this principle of how to change your husband. And she said, you, you know, you don't, you don't nag, you don't complain, you don't leave scripture all over the house. <laughs> you tell God on him. And she says, I says, really, what's the verse? She says, 1 Corinthians 5, 6. And every man, I've had a lot of men come out and say, hey, we shouldn't have told my wife that, sorry. Uh, here's what the verse says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So humble means to bow down. In the margin of my wife's Bible, next to this verse, it says these words. Duck so God can hit your husband upside the head. <laughs> In other words, get out of the way. So he doesn't have to deal with you and him. I'm telling you, listen, let me tell you something. You know the reason so many people push back about this issue of submission one or two reasons. One is an issue of trust, that you don't believe that your husband is a servant leader. You don't believe that your husband has your best interest at heart. And you believe he wants to rule over you and manipulate you and control you. And so there, there's a little bit of a rebellion there. The other thing is this, and I'm just being honest. If this is, if this is your first weekend with us, uh, I'm pretty transparent and I'm pretty honest. And so, uh, well, you'll learn that in just a second. The reason a lot of people, a lot of women, have trouble with this issue of submission is because there's been way too many male chauvinist pigs that have told them women are not equal to men. And that is not in line with Scripture. Okay, so men, uh, here, here's the principle for you. It takes God to be a husband the way God intended a husband to be. I'm telling you, to have a successful marriage, God has to be in the marriage. God has to be in the relationship. And so Paul gives the role of women and, or, or the wife, and God gives the role of the man in, in marriage. And uh, he starts off, and, and ladies, I'm telling you, there's a lot more verbiage, there are a lot more words directed towards the man in the Scripture than women. Women always say, well, of course there is, because you've got to tell a man like three or four times before they get it. So God gets that. God understands that. So the first thing is this. is the first thing that he says is, is to husbands, is husbands, you have to have a, a sacrificial love for your wife. In other words, not, it's not to rule over, it's a servant leadership, it's a sacrificial love. And so Jesus had a sacrificial love for the church. He bled and died for the church. He, 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 died, he, he gave his life to the church. He, he protected the church. He loved the church. Listen, Jesus Christ loved the church even when the church did not love him. Jesus loved the church even when the church didn't treat him properly. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. So it's not only a sacrificial love, we're just walking through these verses. The second thing is this, it was a dedicated love. I mean, it was a love that was dedicated to the marriage. It was dedicated to his wife. Verse 26, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. In other words, he's a spiritual leader. He sets the example in the home of how to worship. I mean, he, he lives that out in his life so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, two different things. We're going to understand that. Or any such thing that he might be holy without blemish. Okay, so spot or blemish is something that happened external. 
It was something that happened external of the, of the church. Jesus Christ protected the church. He protected the integrity of the church. He pr protected the, the reputation of the church. Jesus protected any accusation that came from without. He protected the church. The second thing is this. All of a sudden he talks about our wrinkle. So that's, that's on the inside. That's the inside out. That's what happens on the inside of the church. Jesus protected the church against false doctrine. Jesus protected the church against gossip and division. He kept unity and all of those other things. So how does this work in marriage? Husbands, we take care of our families. We take care of our wives' spiritual needs. Because a wife, her strength is she's tender and she's loving and she's nurturing and she wants to help. And if she is not careful, people can take advantage of her outside of the family. And the husband is the one that stands in the gap for her. The husband is the one that protects her. The husband is the one that protects her from people that may want to come outside the family and take advantage of her. Wrinkle would be something that happens within, inside the family. Those hurts that become inside the family unit. Because remember, we're wired differently. And women carry different hurts from, from family in a different way than men do. Women can carry different hurts from, from parenting or from children, and they, they take those hurts very, very personally. In other words, they, they carry it differently. And sometimes the husband has to be the one that stands up in the family and says, you know what, you'll never talk to your mother like that. You'll never talk to your mom like that ever again. You'll never talk to my wife like that ever again. That she is your mother, she is a woman, she is worthy to, of honor, and you will treat her with respect, and you will treat her with honor. And so this is what he's talking about. He's talking about this issue about what comes outside of the family and what happens inside of the family. Listen, I'm telling you, it's a dangerous thing in marriage when love grows cold and your hearts become hard. That's where you begin to exist. That's where, when you begin to live as roommates. There's something about marriage. There's something about this issue that whenever you get romance... You think you'll never lose it. And when you lose romance, you'll never think you'll get it again. Telling you, if you're in a rough place of marriage, if you're in a rough season of marriage, telling you this morning, that is a chapter, that is not the book. And you can get romance again. And love is a choice, and love is something that you do. And so Paul begins talking about this dedicated love, and he talks about this, this the next one, he talks about this issue of a caring love. Uh, verse 28 and 30, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of, of his body. Now all of a sudden, God begins talking a language to men that men get. He talks about food. And he begins talking about this issue that you love and that you nourish your wife. You love and you nourish her. You compliment her. Uh, she knows how proud you are. Listen, I'm telling you, as a pastor uh, of a large church, I get a lot of positive emails. I get a lot of compliments. People tell me great sermon and all that other stuff. It, 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 and that's meaningful. But can I just be honest with you? There's really only one person I need to hear from. I need to know my wife is proud of me. I need to know. I need to know. Because if my wife isn't proud of me, it doesn't matter how many compliments I get outside of the family, it will, it will be meaningless. In marriage, your husband or your wife needs to know that you're proud of them. 
Another thing about this is this, this issue when, when, when two become one is this issue of a, of, a, of a complete love. Verse 31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become, the two will learn, the two shall become one flesh, the two shall become one spirit. And so when you start looking at that, husbands, the quality of your marriage, the quality of your home is your responsibility. And when one person in the marriage, whether it's husband or the wife, when one person always wants their way, always wants their agenda, it will create problems in marriage. So Paul is clear. In fact, his scripture is clear about this issue. You can have a great marriage, but you're going to have to die. And you're going to have to die to self. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In other words, when you die to self, you have to say, I can no longer respond how I want to respond. Because it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have died to self. I can no longer respond the way in which I used to respond because I have died to self. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In other words, this, when you understand wholehearted, when you understand what it means to become one in spirit with the Lord, you don't have to control, you don't have to manipulate, you don't have to be insecure, have fear, anxiety, worry, or stress. All of those things, listen, all of those things are just signs that you have not died to self. It's still about your goals, it's still about your agenda, it's still about your stuff. If you will die to self, what Scripture says over and over and over, you will have peace in life. Now listen, let me tell you something. I believe with all of my heart the man is supposed to lead. And the man is supposed to do the right thing. But I'm telling you, many years in my ministry, whenever I preached this verse, I preached way too hard to men and it was unbalanced. And let me tell you why. Because when my marriage got healed, it was because I got right. And I just had this belief that if all men get right, then their marriage will get healed. Listen, no marriage will get healed until the dominant one dies. And I was the dominant one. And I had to die. About half the marriages, the wife is the dominant one. She's the one that's manipulating and controlling and always worried about everything being right. And ladies, I'm not down on you because statistics say the other half is men that are dominant. Let me just tell you, so we're tracking. Manipulation is destructive. To try to manipulate, to get your way, to get your goals, to get your agenda... Because, see, manipulation is working in darkness. It's working behind the scenes, dropping hints, going and talking to this person, talking to that person, just, just trying to manipulate. It's working in darkness. And God never works in darkness. God works in the light. And when you're one with him, you realize you don't have to do that. You no longer have to be controlling. You no longer have to be manipulating. See, He's not asking you to give up your agenda. He's not asking you to give up your identity. He's not asking you to give up your gifts and your personality. He's asking you to give up your agenda. You'll never have. You'll never have the marriage you want if you're the dominant one and you refuse to die.
dominant, the word dominant comes from the word dominion. The dominant one in marriage is the one that has dominion over that marriage or has control over that marriage. Can I just tell you this? That's not supposed to be the man, and that's not supposed to be the woman. You know, the one that is supposed to be dominant, dominion over in marriage, you know who that is? Jesus. Jesus should be the dominant one in marriage. The one that has dominion over. The marriage gets healed when the rock has dominion and then all of a sudden people become in line with that and the roles become just natural. You'll never accomplish what you want to accomplish in marriage until you die to self. You know how you got saved, or that's a church word, you, you know how you became a Christian? When the one who had dominion died first. When Jesus Christ, who has dominion, went to the cross, bled, and died for the forgiveness of our sins. The one who's passive-aggressive must die as well. Because they're tired of being ruled over, they're tired of being controlled, and so they control just by being passive, but still wrong. The one who is dominant must lay down and die. And Jesus has laid down and died for us. And when we become one spirit with him, and we come into marriage and be one spirit, where two people die, we'll have the marriage that we've always dreamed of. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Let me ask you this morning, just real quickly, what is God saying to you as a result of this message? Maybe for you it's this issue of dying to self for the very first time and coming into relationship with him, asking him to forgive you of your sins and give you the gift of eternal life. Maybe that's what he has for you today. Listen, I'm telling you, without that, without that relationship with God, you can never be the husband and you can never be the wife that God has intended you to be. And so maybe for you, it's coming into relationship with him. To ask him to come into your life and forgive you of sins and give you the gift of eternal life. And maybe here this morning, you're married. And maybe for you, your next step is in marriage. I need, I need to learn how to die to self. I need to learn how just to trust him to where we come in line with him, where Jesus Christ is the dominant one in our marriage. And we fall in line with each other and we fall in line with him. Maybe this morning you're, you're carrying a burden and say, you know, I just need someone to pray for me. Well, we want to pray for you. We really do. So if you're carrying a burden in any area of your life, we want to pray for you. So in just a few minutes after I pray, we're going to stand. If you need prayer in any area of your life, it's a medical issue, a financial issue, a relational issue, a medical issue. Maybe you're praying about your future, a decision that you need to make. Maybe you want to pray for a child. Maybe you want to pray for someone else. Maybe you want to pray for your marriage. That's okay with us. If you're carrying a burden, we won't pray for you. This is your opportunity. This is your chance to allow us to bear one another's burdens, to minister to one another as if they were own. So if you need prayer in any area, after I pray, you come. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. And Father, we thank you. 
just how much you love us. And may we come in one with you, in one with one another. For those that have burdens and those that need prayer, Father, we just ask that they'd have the courage just to step out and to receive prayer. May burdens be lifted. May prayers be answered. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.